Welcome to the Books and Travel podcast. I'm Jo Francis Penn, thriller and dark fantasy author, bringing you escape and inspiration about unusual and fascinating places, as well as the deeper side of books and travel. You can find the episode show notes at booksandtravel.page. And if you enjoy thrillers set in international locations, download one of my ebooks for free at jfpen.com forward slash free. Hello, travellers. I'm Joe Francis Penn. Some places are so dense with history that stories emerge from every stone. Canterbury in Kent, England, is rich with literary and religious history, and you can walk there in the footsteps of pilgrims who have visited the city for almost a thousand years. In this episode, crime author Anna Saburn Lane talks about how the city and surrounding area inspire her murder mysteries, and about the literary tradition of Chaucer, Dickens, Marlowe and William Blake. We discuss how the history of England is written on the stones of the cathedral and how Archbishop Thomas Becket's murder still echoes in modern times. I bumped into Anna in the Canterbury Cathedral Lodge as I finished my pilgrimage in October 2020, which I talked about in episode 50, This Too Shall Pass, Thoughts from the Pilgrim's Way. And you can also find a day-by-day description with pictures on the blog. My arcane thriller, Tomb of Relics, was also inspired by my visit. So I hope you enjoy the episode today. Anna Saburn Lane is an award-winning short story writer, novelist and journalist inspired by the history and contemporary life of London. Her latest book is The Crimson Thread, a mystery set in Canterbury, England, which we're talking about today. So welcome, Anna. Thank you very much. Oh, it's great to have you on the show. So we met in person at the Canterbury Cathedral Lodge last year, just after I finished my pilgrimage. And we were both wearing masks because of the (laughs) pandemic. And uh, we briefly said hi. But I wanted to ask you first, what drew you to Canterbury in particular for this book research? Well, I've written about Canterbury to some extent before in my my first novel, uh, which I wrote after I'd first walked also from London to Canterbury. So my own uh, pilgrimage ending at Canterbury Cathedral. And I kind of felt a bit of unfinished business um, with Canterbury. It's such um, an amazingly rich place as far as literature and history goes. And those are my two big passions. And also I'd moved uh, to uh, Deal, in, which is about 20 miles uh, south of Canterbury on the seaside, a couple of years ago. So I'd started to spend a, a lot more time in Canterbury, getting to know it better. And I really like the idea of uh, setting a book entirely in Canterbury and uh, letting my literary Uh, sleuth kind of unpack some of the mysteries around Canterbury Cathedral. And you mentioned there the rich history and literature. Maybe you could tell us a few of those things that have inspired you. 
Sure. I mean, Canterbury goes back to Roman times. I, I think that was when it was first settled as a, a, a big place. Um, but then it became very important because of the foundation of Christianity back in Saxon times. St. Augustine was sent to convert the Southern uh, British or the Southern English to Christianity and founded the cathedral, his uh, cathedral in Canterbury. So it's been hugely important all down the, the, the years. And of course, Canterbury Tales, Geoffrey Chaucer's amazing epic poem was first in my mind when I set off from London to Canterbury you know it's it's one of those things you study at a level I'd always kind of liked it so I know a lot of people hated hated having to learn it but I I rather enjoyed it so that was in my mind when I said look it'd be fun to just do this we we were living in London at the time let's walk from Southwark Cathedral to Canterbury Cathedral and see how it goes and kind of on that walk we kept picking up on other literary themes. So obviously there's there's Chaucer, but there are also people like Christopher Marlowe, who uh, was the Elizabethan playwright who was a contemporary of Shakespeare's. And what I did know about him was that he died um, very young, age 29, um, was stabbed to death um, in Deptford, just up the road from where he used to live. And there was lots of questions about what had led to his death. What I didn't know until we arrived in Canterbury was that he was a Canterbury boy. He'd been um, born there, he grew up, he went to the King's School, which is still going. The King's School is the cathedral school. He got a scholarship from there to Cambridge and then became a, a, a playwright, a poet, and also probably a spy, uh, which may well have been what led to his untimely death in Deptford. But it was kind of thinking all of those sort of what ifs about uh, about him that made me start wondering what was it that, that Christopher Marlowe learned when he was growing up in Canterbury at a time of big religious turmoil. You know, we just had the dis- solution of the monasteries, Henry VIII and all that. What was it that he might have, have learnt from one of the monks when he was at the King's School that perhaps uh, took him into, into trouble in later life or got him into trouble in later life? So that, that was what the sort of spark of the first book. But there's, there are other literary associations like uh, Charles Dickens, again, a, a London and also Kent writer who had a, a house at Gads Hill, Uh, just outside of Rochester, which is also on the the route between London and Canterbury. And a lot of um, Dickens' work was inspired by Canterbury as well. So I found that really interesting. And yeah, I I mean, right up to more more up to date, I suppose, uh, T.S. Eliot's uh, Murder in the Cathedral, uh, which was a fairly obvious uh, sort of inspiration for for The Crimson Thread, um, my latest book. And uh, of course, I think there's a statue to Marlowe, isn't there, outside the modern theatre? That's right. Yes. It uh, shows how long ago it was that we did this walk. The, the modern theatre wasn't there when we first went there, but the statue was. And where we were staying, I think it was called the Pilgrim's Lodge, right outside there. So I couldn't quite believe that we arrived in Canterbury uh, and there was, uh, you know, Marlowe right outside the door <laughs> um, by the theatre. So that was quite quite something. And you used to be able to see the house that Marlowe apparently uh, grew up in, but it was bombed during the Second World War. So that's no longer there. Although you can see the church that he was baptised in is still uh, exists if you go further up the high street. And of course, you you did say there on your pilgrimage, and we're not going to get into detail with your pilgrimage, but I find it interesting. You said there was some unfinished business with Canterbury. What what do you mean by that? I suppose in the book, um, the conclusion of, of the first book, Unlawful Things, it was about there was a lot going on with Canterbury, but for example, it never actually went into the cathedral. And although I'd done, you know, quite a careful tour of the cathedral, I'd never actually used 
any of the the things that I'd noticed in the cathedral itself. And I thought it, it seemed a shame that you know, it's such an amazing location that it, it hadn't been necessary to kind of take the action into the cathedral in the first book. So I really liked the idea of coming back and having another go at, uh, at Canterbury and, and particularly uh, the cathedral itself, which is just such an amazing place. Oh, well, I'm glad you said that because I feel the same way. It was like, OK, I I had only really intended to do the walk. And as we said, we met in pandemic times and it seemed appropriate. Uh, but then once you go in there, you just think, oh, this is just this is ripe for some murders and mysteries and things. <laughs> but so, so let's talk about the cathedral in a bit more detail. What are some of your favourite bits of the cathedral, I guess? What stands out in your mind? And there's a few things. One of the the things that I really love about it is you can really see the history of of England, of Britain, almost written in the stones. You know, the the architectural styles built one, literally one on the other. If you go down to the crypt, you can see uh, Romanesque arches from when it was built in in Saxon times. And they would have been made by axe, for example. So they were carved by axe, the decoration on these arches. And then there's literally right next door to, or right next to one of these Romanesque arches, you've got a pointy Gothic arch, which would have been carved by a Norman chisel. And it shows the exact point at which you go from one architectural style and one era of history almost into another and I just love seeing little things like that Um, down in the crypt is enormously spooky as I'm sure you you remember Um, the when we first arrived in Canterbury from uh, the early morning service matins is held in the crypt and of course it's before it's open to visitors so you walk down uh, through the empty nave down the stairs and through the crypt which is quite dark and and kind of spooky uh, to the little chapel where they hold that and that had really stayed with me so that was something that I wanted to to recreate was this spooky feeling of walking through this deserted cathedral where you can hear your footsteps echo and all of the darkness of the crypt and then, of course, there are some just amazing places like the actual martyrdom site of, of St. Thomas. This is, I find it quite extraordinary that, you know, with a lot of, of martyred saints, it's more about the myth than the actual history. Whereas with Thomas Beckett, you not only know what happened, because it is in the historical record that he was murdered by these four knights who cut him down with their swords in his own cathedral. You can actually go and stand on the spot where it happened. And, you know, that within a very sacred place, somewhere that's meant to be completely holy, to know that this really quite brutal murder happened there, it certainly gives me a bit of a chill every time I walk through the the martyrdom transept. Mm. And it's so interesting because it's marked with a cross of what look like swords. I presume they're not actual swords, but they look like swords. And and this is not a a Catholic cathedral anymore. Mm -hmm. This is an Anglican cathedral marking the violent death of a Catholic. And Mm -hmm. I found myself kneeling there, looking at it, going, okay, this is this just feels kind of strange and and weird uh that there's there's still the honoring of this saint in this place and then of course over the road is the catholic church with some of the actual relics uh, of beckett and it's this tiny dark really small next to this massive cathedral What, what what are your thoughts on that yeah, I mean, that's fascinating, isn't it? What's interesting to me as well is what happened to Beckett's Shrine, because, of course, whilst it was a Catholic cathedral up until Henry VIII's day, and what the pilgrims came to see was this 
absolutely magnificent golden tomb studded with jewels, which the saint's body was was held in. And he, it was, you know, a, a major tourist place for people to come to see this an enormously or, ornate shrine. And then when you had the break with Rome, you know, Henry VIII sort of, you know, almost like an early Brexit, wasn't it? It was about who governs um, England, much as the quarrel between Henry II and Becca had been back in the Middle Ages. You know, who's in charge here? Is it the Pope or is it the King? Henry VIII decided that Becket was no longer uh, a saint in the Anglican Church. And in fact, he said he should be treated as, as a traitor. So he sent in the, the commissioners. The shrine was broken up. All of the gold caskets and everything, all of the, the jewels were loaded into carts and sent back to the, the treasury in London. Apparently, there was a, a beautiful emerald that was part of the decoration of the shrine that Henry had made into a ring and he wore it on his thumb for the rest of his life. And the really weird thing is that no one actually knows what happened to Beckett's body, which I find just extraordinary. There are lots of different stories. One of the stories is that it was shot out of a cannon so that all of the bones <laughs> were um, scattered and no one could put them back together again. Um, other stories perhaps more likely are that it was burnt or that it was buried quietly somewhere in the graveyard uh, outside the church. But there genuinely doesn't seem to be any idea what actually happened to it, which is something that I, a thread that I started to pull on in, in my first book, and I'm, I'm still tugging on that a bit. But uh, as you say, the, the little Catholic church across the road has got a, a fragment of Beckett's finger, and they got that in 1951. And the reason that there are still Beckett's relics around, despite the fact that his body was destroyed, was that the church kind of used them as little gifts to each other. So they would send, you know, a, a finger bone of Thomas Beckett might have been sent from the, the cathedral at, at Canterbury to one of the cathedrals in, in Spain or, or France or somewhere as, as a, a bit of a gift, you know, a sort of diplomatic um, uh, kind of essay. And so one of them, uh, I think this one was in Italy, was sent back as a present uh, to the church in, uh, uh, in Canterbury. And uh, I'm obviously also pulling on the thread of what happened to the bones and yes. the and the jewels and everything. And there's a a candle, isn't there, that sits in the area where the shrine would have been originally, which again right. is also interesting. There's the cross swords of the martyrdom site, but then also this candle where the shrine was. So as you walk around the cathedral there are these different points where you can consider Beckett even when, when I was there oh well, you were there too at the same time there's the statue mm. by um Anthony Gormley yes. which was a figure made of nails from the renovation of the cathedral which I thought was fascinating it's like it's eh, not Christ-like but you know the body is not here mm. and this is a sort of representative of of this body I thought that was quite interesting Yes, I love that statue. Um, and that is hanging. I, I love the way it's hanging as well, sort of suspended from the ceiling in the crypt, isn't it? And it, it's actually above. When Beckett was first murdered, the, the monks put him his coffin in the crypt and he had a smallish shrine down downstairs um, in the crypt. And that was where that was. So the sculpture is hanging above where Beckett's body originally rested. And it was there for, I don't know, 100 years or more whilst they built the, the big chapel upstairs and, and got it ready for him so yes another point at which you think about uh, about Thomas Beckett uh, down in the crypt 
And then another place that I really like, and I, I might be a bit weird, but I think you're a bit weird too, which is, <laughs> is the cadaver monument of, I think it's Henry Cicilli or Cicelli. Um, oh, Cic- Cicelli, yes. Cicelli, yes. Who was the archbishop who died in 1443. I was just checking it. And for people listening, the cadaver tomb is, is basically a dead body that looks like a dead body. And this one has the archbishop in full robes on a sort of top level. It's like a bunk bed. Yes, and then on the bottom, the there's this cadaver and he's naked but with a shroud robe over him but you could he's clearly dead his skin color is is gray and you can see his bones and he's not a skeleton he is a cadaver actual like dead body and he had this built while he was alive and looked at it and there are there are so few of these I feel like it's quite special I absolutely love it. I, I think it's amazing. And the, the, the double-deckerness of it, it sort of adds to the weirdness, doesn't it? But yes, I, I, I can't help thinking about, you know, what sort of person would want to go, because this whilst he was still Archbishop, wasn't it, that he mm. had this made. So for 20 years, he'd go into his you know daily job, like you or I going into our office or whatever, and see a representation of himself as a corpse. And, you know, that's, I don't mind contemplating mortality, but um, I, I'm not sure that I, I fancy that every morning. I know, it's kind of crazy. But that's also really what I like about cathedrals I I always come away feeling insignificant in a good way in that and when we were there that when you were there second time obviously that it was being renovated and a lot of it is covered in cloths and in a way I felt disappointed because you couldn't see say the glory of the nave for example but equally you feel like well they're fixing this for the next 300 200 300 years and the stone I I was like the stonemasons these are people men and women who have this connection with the people who built this like a thousand years ago which is kind of cool but isn't it just yeah I mean that that would be such an amazing job Uh, you'd need a head for heights I think but so yeah that that would be fantastic I really love as well in the cathedral that you can see the wear of the years so there are the steps the pilgrim steps that go up to where the shrine would have been where the candle is now and they're gently shallowly worn into a sort of a curve uh, where the people's footsteps would have gone and rather than fixing them they've put a sign up just saying be careful (laughs) don't trip because they are worn steps from thousands and thousands of pilgrims and I, I really like that the sense of the depth of history that it gives you. And then what about the spiritual aspects and the, the religious aspects? Do you have a, a personal sense of God in that space? I mean, I, uh, just to be clear, I'm not a Christian, but mm. I felt as I sat there during the song, Even Song, I felt very like a spiritual moment where the voices soared up into that nave. And I sat there thinking, this is one of the most spiritual moments on my pilgrimage and it was a very special time I was pretty emotional about it actually afterwards but what are your feelings in what is a very religious but also quite spiritual place yeah I mean personally I was brought up Church of England um, stopped having any faith really early adulthood and I'm very interested in religion but I don't have a religious faith Uh, I absolutely respect other people's of course and I found it really interesting to be in religious places and try to understand a little of how it affects people and of course it, it can't but affect you when you're somewhere that is just so beautiful Um, and I think it's partly actually it's the aesthetics it's partly that you're in this beautiful beautiful building that was built 
so many hundreds of years ago by these incredible craftspeople and it is still being cared for and it is still being used for what it was intended to be used for you know it's not a museum it's not um, a tourist attraction although it is a bit but it is a, a living church and people come and worship there and I think that can't help but have quite a strong impression on you and certainly the singing is is just glorious and in the Crimson Thread I've, I've brought in the choir because I love the idea of having a, a, a choir boy as one of my characters but also I wanted to think a little bit about what it would be like to actually sing there you know I don't think I, I'm, I'm not a I'm not a singer at all I don't have a good voice but I to be able to sing in a space like that must just be a, a really special very spiritual experience mm. oh now you've said that I want to join some choir and just be a quiet <laughs> voice at the back because it was it was it was truly amazing and I think because I was there for Evensong on a weeknight on it during the pandemic and so for about 20 minutes and I was there beforehand I got there early and I was there about 20 minutes during practice so it was nine or ten men in their robes all separated up on the steps because they were social distancing while they were singing obviously and then there was almost just me in the nave for while they were practicing and I actually found the practice session was almost more spiritual than the service itself with the sort of more getting up and down and and doing the things Uh, but it was it was yeah a very special moment uh, as you say I did want before we move on to other places I did want to mention also the Christchurch gate which Uh I think is pretty special as well yes Yes, it's lovely, isn't it? Outside where you come in from the butter markets and uh, the big old wooden gate. And the lovely thing, actually, if you at the time that I, that I met you, we hadn't actually walked there that time. But we were staying in the cathedral lodge and we'd driven, which means that and we were arriving late at night, which means that you can actually drive through that gate, which is really incredible. So you rock up in, in the middle of uh, Canterbury in, in your car and uh, knock on the gate and, and the constable opens this uh, uh, this big wooden gate and you can just drive in, which uh, really feels really very special yeah it's an incredible um really old I don't know how old the gate is but uh, it's so imposing and when, when we first walked there of course you that was where we arrived and uh, and you, you go in through the little um side door I think which most people would, would walk in and out of yeah. and we should also make you mean you mentioned there the constable but they and I didn't know this before that trip that they have their own constabulary within yes. the cathedral grounds they're called special cathedral constables so they are uh, police men and women who who were there and they're there full time. And when I found that out, I was like, well, that throws a bit of a spanner in the works as <laughs> if there is a murder or there is something that happens. They're going to be there pretty quick. So how, how did you deal with that? <laughs> <laughs> Yes, well, I did have to think. I, I think I might have cheated slightly in that. Well, no, not cheated. I, I, I made sure somebody who shouldn't have had the keys so they could get in and out without being let in by the constables. Ha! Um, <laughs> <laughs> and also that the body itself was discovered first thing in the morning in the cathedral. So it, before anyone else had been in. So the cathedrals had, the constables hadn't had a chance to find them. <laughs> ah, fantastic. But I, that is definitely something. Is it, Do you know of any other church I mean does York have their own one or is is it special to Canterbury I've no idea I don't know how um, I don't know the other places that had it I I only knew about it because I was quizzing one of my my friends in Deal who has actually volunteered at the cathedral so she knew all about the the, the constables and uh, uh, let me in on that. <laughs> yeah, it's fascinating. So any other places in Canterbury or Kent that you also find interesting in terms of your book research? 
Uh, yeah, there, there, there are loads. Most of them are sort of connected to uh, religious uh, places in one way or another. But one that I really like is the Eastbridge Hospital, which is uh, just inside uh, Westgate, bizarrely. But uh, if you walk along from Westgate into the city, you go past the Eastbridge Hospital, which is over the east bit of the river. And it's a very old p- pilgrim hostel, which was set up, I think it was something like 20 years after the death of, of Thomas Beckett, So it was a really, really early hostel and it was set up to house some of the poor pilgrims who came who couldn't afford to stay in the inns or expensive places. And it's still got a chapel and a a great hall where presumably people would have eaten. Uh, But if you go downstairs into the undercroft, you can see right next to the river. So it's got uh, windows onto the river on one side and then a fairly dank sort of room with uh, with a hard floor where the pilgrims would have slept. And going in there was really quite quite a, a special place that you sort of felt the almost felt the tiredness of all of those pilgrims who'd, who'd walked or ridden for days uh, to Canterbury and this was where they, they finally got to stretch out and probably have a good gossip about all of the things that happened to them on the way. So Eastbridge is really lovely. Um, a couple of others, the, the Greyfriars Chapel is what remains of the Franciscan Monastery, which was within uh, Canterbury. It's a walled city, so within the, the city walls. And the, the chapel is actually on a tiny little island. There are various, the, the River Stour goes through Canterbury, but it's very windy and it kind of has little uh, tributaries that go off and then meet up again. And Greyfriars Chapel is a little pointy building actually set across one of those tributaries. So it's sort of on a an island and it's actually quite hard to get to and it I've discovered since it just depends on whether a certain gate is open or not off one of the, the streets of, of Stow Street whether you can find it or not I've spent a lot of time walking up and down thinking it's got to be here somewhere <laughs> <laughs> but there is actually only one way in and then just outside of Canterbury, uh, so about a mile or two, uh, Harbledown Village, uh, which has a couple of uh, very old churches and St Nicholas Church and almshouses is particularly ancient and really rather lovely. Again, they go back to, to Saxon times and uh, St Nicholas Church has connections with Beckett. Apparently he uh, did uh, visit there, lost a shoe there once. <laughs> they had an old shoe that they claimed was Beckett's shoe. A holy shoe. <laughs> Why he would have left a shoe there, I cannot imagine. Um, except that there is a, a, a well round the back of it, which is still there. You can see a little be- a stone basin, which is filled naturally by, by a spring, um, supposedly a healing well. So possibly he'd taken his, his, his shoes off to wash his feet or something. But it, it also has almshouses, which are very old. And that used to be a, a leper colony. So back when we still had leprosy in Britain and uh, I think it was because of the healing well that they established the, the colony there to house the lepers. And uh, I suppose the, the idea was that they would be cured by this holy water. And uh, yeah, that's that's one that uh, it's still used, obviously no leprosy now, but it's still used as, as almshouses now. So again, it's still got that nice connection of it's pretty much being used in the spirit of which it was set up. No, that's fantastic. And I think (laughs) the more you talk, I think we're so similar in our love of history inspiring our stories and Mm. uh, which is really cool. And I did want to ask you, because one of another of your novels, The Peacock Room, features the work of William Blake, who I've also included in many of my books. Uh, So I wondered, like, what fascinates you particularly about Blake and uh, what are the things that you're particularly attracted to in terms of his work? 
he's a really truly independent author and artist. I mean, he would absolutely be independently published and, and doing brilliantly today. I think it's it's a little sad that he wasn't able to do so back in the 18th century. I, I love his complete independence of thought. He once said uh, something along the lines of, I, I must create my own system or be enslaved by another man's. And I really like that, that he, he was so determined, for example, to present his work in the way he thought it should be presented, that he invented an entirely new printing process in order to uh, engrave his poems, have them you know, decorated in the way he wanted, um, create it as a, a unified piece of art, the, the words and the pictures together, and then hand colour it and everything and produce his own books. So I really love that about him, that uh, he was completely uncompromising in, in the way he produced his art. Not commercially successful, sadly, although he, he also supported himself by engraving and uh, and and other sort of more commercially viable work and I quite like that about him as well because that's you know so many of us myself included I, I work as a journalist mainly to pay the bills and I, I do uh, writing and I'm hoping to, to make that more of a the author career more more important but uh, I, I like that sort of independence of spirits where he you know he can only do his art his way um, in terms of the actual poems, obviously, songs of innocence and experience are the ones that I, I love the most um, because they're they're far more accessible than some of his lengthy poems. Uh, but a couple that I really love, um, the poison tree is is the one that actually in, inspired the Peacock Room, talking about how um, if you hide hatred, um, it sort of becomes poisonous and it can grow and become very sinister and the poem finishes with the line in the morning glad I see my foe outstretched beneath the the, the tree which always gives me shivers down my spine every time I hear it so I, I, I really love that one and then some really tender poems as well like Infant Joy from Songs of Experience which is this very simple little dialogue between a mother and her newborn child and I'm really curious about that. I'm interested to know how it is that someone like William Blake, who was at the time a, a young man in his 20s with no children, how he could think himself into that position to be able to write that sort of dialogue. I, I just find really fascinating. Mm. And what I find interesting there is you've picked up on the the poetry and I've really written about his uh, paintings and his drawings and some of the sculpture that I guess that's, that's been made from that. And uh, so it's really interesting because I've of course seen like I've seen his books and I've read some of his writing, but I find his images, his religious images, yeah. re- religious and mythological, I guess, which many of which come from the Bible, but they're also interpreted in many ways. Like I, I think his his end of days would be one of the, the most well-recognised images. And I went to the Tate Britain exhibition. Did you go mm. to that one? Oh, several times, yes. Yeah, that was <laughs> just amazing. And you're kind of walking around just going, how does one person have so much richness in their head to produce all of this and I think that's partly why I'm so fascinated with religion and the Bible and Christian history and myth and all the things that go around it because it's such a rich vein to tap for our writing. Yes completely yes and and obviously something that that Blake I love the way that he reinterprets everything and I think that was quite key to his philosophy as well that what he thought was was divine was imagination Um, what an amazing sort of role model that is you know that, that 
that he he will take what other people see or hear and he will completely transform it through the power of his his own vision and just coming to your literary sleuth Helen Oddfellow <laughs> which is obviously some part of you is in Helen and sure. we both love old manuscripts as well and, and I love this idea obviously I, I do it too but weaving history into the novel so how do you pick it up from history and put it in the modern day and how are you portrayed in Helen? <laughs> um, Helen was actually inspired by a friend of mine who is a London tour guide, walking tour guide, um, uh, Fiona. And the, the fantastic thing about going anywhere with Fiona is, is you walk along the street and she say, oh, look, Mercer's Maiden. And you say, sorry. And, and you look and you see a statue of a little um, lady above a shop window, a shop uh, lintel. And so, OK, what's that? And, and you go, oh, that's because that was a symbol of the Mercer's Guild. And the Mercer's Guild always uh, was the guild that uh, produced fancy goods and sold fancy goods in London. So she'll, she'll just know something about everything that you pass. And at the time when I was starting to write the novel, I thought, Something like that, you know, to be a London tour guide would be a really great profession for an amateur sleuth because she would already know all of this stuff. I would, she wouldn't need to go and find it out a lot of the time. She'd already know it. And she's already looking at things with a historical eye. So she notices stuff and she notices stuff about history. And I think that's probably how I get the history in is because Helen sees it, you know, that's her. She looks for it. And I, I also made her an academic on the side because then she gets to go and dig around in, in archives. Um, it, like you, that's a really fun bit of the job. I, I really enjoy going and digging around. In, in uh, I'm amazed actually how many people will, if you tell them you're writing a book, will uh, let you just come and rifle through their archives uh, with a, a, a desultory check on your identity. It's fantastic. <laughs> And it's funny because when I, I lived for 11 years in Australia and New Zealand and we came back eventually because I missed this depth of history that we can walk down pretty much any street <laughs> in the United Kingdom even and there will be this historical resonance. And I lived in London as well. And now I live in Bath and it's just everywhere in the architecture and in the names of the streets. And I feel like that resonance, that constant feeling of we're part of history is what's so inspiring. Completely agree. And I, I totally understand coming back for the history. <laughs> I think that, that would be something that I would do, I think. Um, we've actually just had a weekend in London. First time I've been to London for absolutely ages. And we stayed in the city and we went for this walk. And I was trying to remember a walk that I'd done years ago with a tour guide about Dickens, because I'm, I'm thinking a lot about Dickens for the next book. And we walked up past the Royal Exchange, down this little alleyway, round the corner. And there was this tavern that Dickens apparently once frequented. And because it was pandemic and everything shut and it was Sunday night and it was getting dark, it felt really quite spooky. And I, I, I actually felt not only am I in a Dickensian alleyway by a Dickensian pub, I feel like I'm about to be thumped over the head by a Dickensian urchin who's going to run away with my money or something. You know, as you say, it really feels like it's absolutely everywhere. It's certainly in London and, and absolutely in Canterbury as well. Yeah, fantastic. Well, we could talk forever, but uh, this is the <laughs> Books and Travel podcast. So can you recommend a few books that feature Canterbury or Kent or just travel books that you love in particular? 
I will. The first is John Higgs' book, Watling Street, which covers quite a lot of ground, but it starts at St. Margaret's Bay, where Watling Street, the the Roman streets, uh, started. St. Margaret's Bay is about 10 miles from here. It's a a seaside village where Ian Fleming uh, bought a house, which uh, is a very beautiful sort of beachfront Art Deco style house. Apparently he bought it from Noel Coward. uh, So we've got a good couple of uh, literary allusions to, to start with. And then the road continues continues uh, up uh, across the marshes with the Romans into London, out the other side of London, <laughs> goes through the Midlands. Uh, there's quite a long section in uh, Milton Keynes, and it finally winds up in, in Anglesey. And the road is quite straight, but the book is anything but. He uh, makes beautiful diversions all over the place, talks to lots of the people who live along the route, um, diverts into all the history from ancient history with the Druids right up to 1960s countercultural history. It, it's the most amazing book and hugely enjoyable. So I completely recommend that oh, one. That is straight on my list. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you'll love it. <laughs> Novels. I'm a great admirer of William Shaw's crime novels uh, set in uh, Kent and surroundings, Kent and uh, just across the border. And his first one, particularly uh, The Birdwatcher, which is set in Dungeness. And I love Dungeness again. It's such a, a, an eerie sort of place. And in, in non-pandemic times, I used to go there quite a lot uh, to hang out on, on the beach there. And then my, my final uh, recommendation, really, it, it's nothing to do with uh, uh, with Kent, but uh, this year being uh, the, the year where we've not been able to travel anywhere, uh, and I was desperate to travel, particularly back in February when everything was extremely bleak, I really, really was longing for an escape, a romantic Valentine's Day escape. So I bought Jan Morris's Venice, which I've, I've not been to Venice, but uh, this book is so evocative and so beautiful that I'm now quite nervous about going to Venice in case it doesn't live up to the book which sounds insane but it's such a lovely book it's funny you say that I have that book and I actually one of the earlier podcasts um for books and travel is about Venice and I've been three times and I actually talk about the problem when places don't live up to your expectations and the 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 issue was that the first time I was in Venice it didn't (laughs) but then if you go back and you go back and you go back it's a bit like London or anywhere that's so rich in and has such depth and uh, such a myth almost about it and the myth of Venice is just as huge and it's it's almost like the first time you go you can only really scratch the surface of the main things that you're going to see and then you have to go back again and again in order to go like I don't have to go um, in there anymore because I went there last time and now I can move to kind of the second level of understanding this place and then the third level so yeah And I know that's a bit tough, but yeah, I feel like it's important to take it down a level. Yes, that's very true. Yeah, we recently, recently, two years ago, went to Paris and I loved it, this trip, because we didn't have to do any of the tourist things because we've been there lots of times. So we Mm. could just go and hang out in the places that we liked and go to the exhibitions that that weren't in the Louvre or the Orangery or whatever. Yeah, no, that's fantastic. Well, where can people find you and your books online? Right. So uh, my website is annasaburnlane.com. That's just all one word, A-N-N-A-S-A-Y-B-U-R-N-L-A-N-E.com. I've got a Facebook page, Anna Saburn Lane. Um, I'm Insta, um, at Anna Saburn Lane. And just for a change on Twitter, I'm at Bloomsbury Blue, because I used to live in Bloomsbury. (laughs) Brilliant. Well, thanks so much for your time, Anna. That was great. 
You're welcome. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for joining me today on the Books and Travel podcast. I hope you found a moment of escape. You can find the episode show notes at booksandtravel.page. And if you enjoy thrillers set in international locations, download one of my books for free at jfpen.com forward slash free. Happy travels until next time.